Welcome back to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you, Carlos? Hey, Alberto. How are you? I'm doing good. Glad to have you back and looking forward to a new episode. Yes, a new episode for the new year. And before we get started, I just want to remind all our listeners, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, click the like button, and tell your friends. So who do you have for us this episode, Carlos? Yeah, well, uh, for the first time, we'll be um, dealing today with someone who was alive at the same time as me. And you know how ancient I am, so you know it goes way back. But Marie-Yvonne Aimé Beauvais was her given name. She's also known as Marie-Yvonne Aimé de Jésus and Yvonne Aimé de Malestroit. <laughs> so anyone wants to look her up, the key combination of names that gets you to websites on her is Yvonne Aimé. And Aimé is spelled A-I-M-E-E. -E. She was born in 1901, same year as two of my grandparents, and she died in 1951. So if she had taken a trip to Havana <laughs> in 1951 before she died, she might have seen me, my parents pushing a stroller or something. So we're in the really modern world now, but there's much about her that makes her very much like all the much older medieval and early modern mystics that we have covered before. She was an Augustinian nun, French, ended up in this convent in Malitrois. It's almost in Brittany. And she's very, very unusual in so many different respects that there's a lot that can be said that we won't have time to cover. But maybe we can return to her another time if we run out of time today. She was, uh, let me do this, because I have pitched her story to a, a couple of book publishers, and uh, something very funny has happened. And this is how I begin the pitch. I say, you know, there was this nun who, uh, during the Second World War, worked with the French resistance. And she hid members of the French resistance, as well as downed Allied pilots and Jews who were fleeing the Nazis. And quite often, she dressed them up as nuns to hide them from the Nazis. And she also is credited with helping people escape from prisons and concentration camps. And she herself, at one point, was arrested by the Gestapo. But at the end of the war... After France was liberated and the Nazis were completely uh, wiped out, she received several medals from the French government and the French military, including the two most distinguished awards, the Croix de Guerre, or Cross of, of War, and the Légion d'Honneur, the Legion of Honor. And I think it was the Croix de Guerre was pinned on her. And there's video of this. There's video of this event. The leader of the French forces in the Second World War, who then later became president, Charles de Gaulle, pinned one of these medals on her. So she's a war hero. Oh, and then these two publishers, they got really uh, excited. So oh, this is this is such a marvelous story. Yes, it's, somebody ought to write a book about this woman. Uh, maybe even uh, turn it into a film. This is fabulous. And then I say, but that, that's not the whole story. <laughs> what do you mean that? 
how could there be any more? I said, this woman was a mystic. And she levitated, bilocated. She had the gift of the stigmata. She could see the future. But it's the bilocations that, you know, are just out of the ordinary. She's like the Joseph of Cupertino of bilocation or the Maria. She's, she's a lot like Maria de Agreda. There are at least 150 bilocations that have been verified. Uh, the people who experienced her in different places have testified. And it's probably more than 150 if you count the ones that people have not reported. But the interesting thing, and it links her mystical side with her resistance side, is that she bilocated to prisons and concentration camps. And she comforted people who were in those awful circumstances. And also, in some occasions, helped them to escape. All the same time, at the same time, she was in her convent at Malestroit. So that's when the publishers' faces grow real long. <laughs> and they start to lose interest in the story. Oh no! Oh, okay. That's why they don't say it, but it's like they—they almost, uh, with their facial expression, say, "Oh, you just ruined such a beautiful story," because it's so incredible. And what makes it uh, doubly or triply incredible to me is that there's a lot that's been written on her, and some of her writings have been published, but everything's in French. I have only found two or three very slim books in English, and one in German. The man who served as her confessor for many, many, many years wrote a five-volume biography that hasn't, of course, been translated to English or any other language. So she's not very well known outside of the French-speaking world. And I, I find that very odd. And we might get to this later, but no, why not now? Because, you know, it's part of the story is the fact that one of her most amazing bilocations was witnessed, it actually happened, to her confessor, the man who wrote the five-volume biography, or hagiography. And what had happened was that she had been arrested by the Gestapo and was being tortured by the Gestapo to name names and so on and so forth. And she was resisting. And they said, okay, fine, we're just going to pack you on a train and send you to Germany. And when she was told this, her confessor was in Paris, which is not exactly ne next to her convent. It's a fairly long trip. Anyway, she appeared to him in the Paris metro, in the subway, explained what was happening to her, and asked him to please, 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 please pray for me. I'm just, you know, this is my situation. So he started praying really hard for her. And she then showed up again at the place where this priest was staying in Paris. And it was her. It wasn't a bilocated Yvonne Aimé. It was her. She had been able to escape from the Gestapo jail. And in the confusion of the people that were being put into the train and sent to Germany, apparently they didn't notice that she had gone missing. So some of these accounts are very, very um, dramatic. And if one may say so, you know, for our general culture, unbelievable or impossible. Yet we're talking about something that happened in the 1940s and actually uh, happened all through her adult life in the 30s and 40s and into, well, she didn't live very long into the 50s. I know you mentioned she didn't write much, and what was written is in French. Have you had a chance to read it? 
Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Because I can read French. I can't speak French because the French refuse to understand my pronunciation. <laughs> I think with good reason. You know, I murder the language when I speak it because I've never had much of a chance to spend time speaking it. But I, I read it like as I read English and Spanish. So, yeah, I've read a bit of it. But actually, our uh, library here at Yale does have the five-volume biography, which I took another look at this afternoon. But we don't have her own writings, the little bit that she wrote that's been published. And there are other books on her that we Yale Library does not have. And those two very slim English language books I mentioned are both out of print. I've been trying to get my hands on them for some time, but they're just out of print. So if the used bookstores online don't have them, it's pretty hard to track down a copy. Was there anything in her writings that jumped out at you? Well, yeah, she is um, very devoted to Jesus and to the love of Jesus. And Jesus revealed various things to her. And we can get to these. Uh, I'd like to read some of these revelations of hers a little later. But the thing is that what she has to say is very, let's put it in this term, traditional, very much like earlier mystics, the, the kinds of things that they would say. But it's the context in which her visions and ecstasies are happening that is just so absolutely unusual because she happened to live during a very bad time in France, Nazi occupation from 1940 to 1944. So it's almost like finding a buried object that's very old, right? And you come across it or you open a, a drawer on some new piece of furniture and you don't expect to find some antique item in there. That's how I react to her writings. One person that we will talk about uh, another time is Margaret Mary Delacoque, another French nun, 17th century, who was very, very uh, focused on the sacred heart of Jesus and uh, the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. She's very similar. And here, you know, here's someone who levitated, had the stigmata, and also uh, very much like Teresa of Avila and Anthony of the Desert had horrific encounters with demons. So we have someone, you know, in our culture at large, I have seen this happen several times in the past few years. The adjective medieval is just something that's just absolutely not modern. <laughs> Especially the expression, I'm going to go medieval on you, which means, you know, you're going to, you're going to get real nasty. But she's got this very medieval, traditional, let's call it what it is. It's traditional Catholic mysticism in a completely different setting. It's like she's a throwback to the old mystics. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I, I have not done all that much research on her. I'll be honest. I don't know what she read because I haven't gotten that far in her five-volume uh, biography. Not yet, anyway. So I don't know what she'd read, but it's pretty clear to me that, you know, she's she knows many of these classics of Christian mysticism. And, well, this is what you might expect in a convent, you know, for a nun, is they have this literature. Uh, they, they love this literature. They read it. Uh, they, they just soak it up. 
And she's very much proof of this. And she has one aspect of her life story is, in fact, very traditional, which is the fact that she was precociously religious as a little girl. And when she was only 10 years old, or less than 10, she was nine. She was, she was nine years old. This would be January of 1911. Two days after she made her first communion, she wrote down a pact of love with Jesus. And this has survived. And of course, everyone who admires her cites this as you know proof of her very special status. Because not very many nine-year-olds do things like this. And I'm going to read that now. This is a nine-year-old. Oh, my little Jesus, I give myself to you completely and forever. I shall always want what you shall want. I shall do all that you tell me to do. I shall live for you. I shall live in silence. And if it be your will, I will suffer much in silence. I beg you to make me become a saint, a very great saint, a martyr. Make me always faithful. I want to save many souls and to love you more than everyone else. Now, that's a nine-year-old speaking. (laughs) But I also want to be very little so as to give you more glory. I want to possess you, my little Jesus, and to shine with you. I want to belong to you alone, but above all, I want to do your will. Wow. Obviously, she had read things like this before. Where else does a nine-year-old come up with? It's almost like she was a prodigy. Well, yeah, it's like Mozart, (laughs) you know, a mystical Mozart of sorts, composing orchestra pieces. Yeah. The thing is, also to add a little more texture to her life, is that her father died when she was only three years old. And at that time, when she was nine, she was living with her maternal grandmother. And on and off, she actually, as you know, happens even in our own day to children who lose a parent, she was shuttled around quite a bit. She went back to living with her mom for a while. And then she also ended up spending time in boarding schools where her mother worked and was director of these schools. There's also a story I, I need to check out because it's quite clear that while she was still very young and a laywoman, not yet a nun, she was attacked by three men and you know, physically attacked. And one of them was a priest. It's very hard to get to the details of what happened. So she is a, a victim of abuse of some sort early in life uh, before she became a nun. So what type of mystic would you classify her as from what you know? Yeah, well, she's very much an affective mystic, if one wants to put a label on, on her. She's very much about love, love of Jesus, and especially love as reflected in the passage I just read, child Jesus, Jesus as a child. So she is pretty much focused on Jesus, and this is very common of early modern nuns too. This focus on the infant Jesus spikes up in the 17th century and into the 18th. And then uh, she's picking up on a lot of this. There's a special veneration that Catholics developed in the early modern period 
to the infant Jesus. So she's picking up on this and enhancing it. And she came up with this little prayer. Well, she didn't come up with it. She claimed that uh, Jesus uh, had given her the prayer, which was later approved by the church. An indulgence, I mean, an indulgence is where attached to it. It's a very simple prayer. Oh, Jesus, King of love, I put my trust in your loving mercy. And this is something that you're supposed to say over and over again throughout the day. And it helps in various ways, according to people who have practiced repeating this little prayer over and over again. Oh, Jesus, King of love, I put my trust in your loving mercy. And she received this prayer in 1922. So she was only 21 when that happened. And then after her death in 1958, Pope John Twenty-Third. He extended this indulgence prayer to be used by the the entire universal Catholic Church. So you've got combination here of many traditional things in her mysticism with her life, because I have failed to mention something that's also very important. She and her nuns ran a hospital. So in addition to being a mystic and being a member of the French resistance, she took care of the sick. And she was put in charge of her monastery fairly early on. And she also worked to expand her religious order. And as a matter of fact, she was on her way to South Africa in 1951 to um, visit the convents and hospitals and schools that her sisters had in South Africa. But she died before she could get on the boat, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. She was very sickly woman too, like St. Teresa of Avila. So again, you see, we keep returning to these patterns of mystics with infirmities of some sort. Infirmities, meaning their bodies are painful or not working correctly, or they're ill often, or endure long-term pain, who turn that and try to make it into something else, have very busy lives, engage taking care of other people. Uh, while at the very same time, enjoying or receiving visits from the divine. You wonder if their illnesses and their sickly bodies is what makes them a mystic or helps make them a mystic, or is being a mystic the cause of their sickly bodies? Well, and you know, at least let's just stick with her and Teresa of Avila because they share a common pattern, which is illness in early life serious illness, long recuperation time, and then illness throughout the rest of their lives. In the case of Teresa of Avila, she doesn't start having mystical experiences till she was middle-aged, or so she says, right? So you have to believe what she says in her autobiography or trust that it's true. The illness precedes her mystical experiences. In the case of Yvonne Aimé, she was already sort of on this path Although she was not a nun, she didn't become a nun until she was in her 20s. But still, this kind of chicken and egg question can be asked of all mystics, uh, and especially those that undergo quite a bit of suffering. I ask that because a lot of these mystics that we've spoken about, when they're going through these mystical experiences, they describe physical pain that they experience. They describe how it takes a toll on their physical body. So that's where I'm kind of making the connection. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's it's there. 
you know, and it's hard to miss. As a matter of fact, you have to work hard not to pay attention to it because <laughs> it's, it's so prevalent. So th- this links to a very traditional Catholic attitude towards suffering and pain, which turns it into something redemptive. Redemptive in various senses, but especially in two. One, it helps the individual to focus intensely on the divine and the spiritual. And then in many cases, as is true of Yvonne Aimee, it also makes them work hard for other people, despite their pain. And the kind of the pain actually, in many cases, especially hers, seems to energize them to devote their lives to serving others and helping others. Even in her case, to risk her life for others. I can't remember how many movies I've seen, but it's quite quite a few where um, part of the plot is that someone is hiding resistance fighters or Jews or allied soldiers. And uh, the suspense is sometimes unbearable in these movies. And that's true of Yvonne Aimee, for sure. But the whole idea, or let me reword that, this approach to pain and suffering as redemptive, I think goes against the grain of our dominant culture. And I think less, certainly, less significant than it used to be to Catholic culture. But getting the stigmata is is considered a gift in Catholic mysticism. And in all cases that I know of, the stigmata are never painless. They're painful, very painful. And I suppose from our, you know, our dominant secular materialistic culture, say, you know, there's some kind of psychological pathology involved here. This is just, you know, maybe it's pure masochism or whatever. But what I always try to keep in mind is that, you know, it's not until anesthesia and painkillers become commonly available beginning in the late 19th century. It's not until then that it became possible for human beings to either alleviate their pain or escape from pain, Uh, even psychological pain you know, with antidepressants and my mother's generation in Spanish called them calmantes, <laughs> pills that calm you down. This is, you know, given the history of the human race, this is fairly recent. So now it, it sort of runs against the grain of what most people expect or want. Yeah. Oh my, my back hurts. I, let, me, let me take two a leave. <laughs> Not Julian of Norwich, you know, who prayed to God for an illness that would almost kill her. So we run into this time and time again. Speaking for myself, I can tell you that when you're in pain, uh, it's it's a lot easier to get closer to God. You find yourself praying and pleading to God and, and seeking a, a closer relationship with him while you're in pain. So I sort of kind of understand why some of these mystics would view pain as a as a way to get closer to God. Yeah, and I think there is actually, you know, pain serves that function. It can very easily serve that function. And there's this other Catholic tradition, you know, the the pain is not just yours. I mean, you're feeling the pain, but your pain can be offered up to God towards the redemption and and help of others, just as, you know, Jesus' pain on the cross. And this is very much a part of traditional Catholicism in many cultures. But I don't think it's a very, very 
sort of common experience to run into this in 21st century American Catholic culture. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's not. There's a strong aversion to pain and and an aversion to any discomfort, which we've been blessed to live in a time where we have so many luxuries and we have painkillers and we have air conditioning and we have central heating and, and all these wonderful things that pain, you can almost say, is amplified. Any little bit of pain is can be considered a, a horrible experience. That's right. And it can be. I mean, I'm just going to use one example from my own experience. I occasionally get kidney stones. Morphine does not help. <laughs> the pain is that bad. Sometimes if you get a stone that won't budge, oh my God, you know, even with morphine, you still feel the pain. And in those times, yes, oh yes, you're right. You're absolutely right what you said before. You pray constantly. Or if you were exposed to traditional Catholicism as a child, you offer it up. And it helps. In my own case, it has helped to think of it that way. That somehow my suffering is redemptive, not just for myself, but for others. Scholars who study religion in a social scientific framework tend to take a functionalist approach to religious phenomena. Meaning, you know, what function does it serve? What role does this serve? It's, it's very clear in the history of Christian mysticism that pain, illness, and even self-inflicted pain, because we can't leave that out either, is part of the purgation process for the individual, but perhaps also for the wider community. But I think that, you know, if you contrast her life of pain and dedication to her work, to that little prayer of hers, Oh, Jesus, King of love, I put my trust in your loving mercy. I think it's very interesting that she's focused on the boy Jesus, the young Jesus, calling him king. King of what? King of love. Roi d'amour. It has this, definitely you could call it affective, but it also has a reverential overtone, and it also has a kind of almost, for lack of a better term, not erotic in the sense that most people think of, of that word, erotic, but kind of love that people have for each other when they say, I am in love, right? Or I love you. All of this wrapped up together, but it's the boy Jesus. The boy Jesus is not known for experiencing pain. It's the mature Jesus, who is the king of pain, eventually, when he's crucified. Again, paradoxes and things that are not compatible with linear reasoning are part and parcel of Christian mystical tradition. You mentioned the bilocation and briefly mentioned the, the stigmata. Can you tell us a little bit about her spiritual gifts? Yeah, well, she also could get glimpses of the future. For instance, one of the more often quoted of her prophecies. And actually, one of the books I have not been able to get my hands on is this book that collects all her prophecies. She foresaw the Second World War. She foresaw France being overrun by soldiers. And she foresaw, and this was in the 1920s, right? So the First World War had ended. And yes, there had been aerial bombardment during the First World War. 
but it was, you know, compared to what she saw in a vision and compared to what happened in the Second World War, which matched her vision, is she saw clusters of bombs being dropped on cities. She could also foresee what, what would happen to some people in their lives in the future. I have not read much about her going into prolonged ecstatic trances like Teresa of Avila or Joseph of Cupertino, but she certainly did go into ecstasies, and her, the nuns could see that, that she was ecstatic. You also mentioned she had struggles with demons. Oh, yes. Yeah. And this is, again, this is the kind of stuff that runs against the grain of our dominant culture. And even in traditions like the Catholic tradition, many modern day Catholics just don't like to see this. But no, she she struggled both emotionally and psychologically with temptations and actually could see the demons also and sometimes attacking her physically, just like St. Anthony in the desert. And much is made of this, of course, by those who have tried to promote her canonization, because this is uh, a sign of heroic virtue, which is very important, as important or in some cases more important than miracles to have someone recognized as a saint. Are there any of those tales of her? Well, yeah, her... One in particular, I think you're going to tales of, of how they attack her. There's one that actually, you know, it's all in French, but it's on YouTube. And it's her um, confessor, the man who wrote five volume biography, being interviewed. And he speaks of an attack that he himself saw the results of the attack. And um, Yvonne Aime was scratched up and bleeding. So it's very physical attack. And in this interview, he goes on at some length, you know, describing how bloody she was and the scratch marks. And it's a very graphic description. Almost like a scene from The Exorcist. Well, yeah. Yes. And this is where, you know, the pitch I made to the publishers about, you know, <laughs> her story being interesting. This is where if, if I were to, or anyone, where it emphasizes angle and say, hey, you know, this is like the exorcist. Maybe you'll be interested in that other part of her life other than the one of rescuing uh, resistance fighters, Jews, and allied soldiers. I keep mentioning St. Anthony of the Desert because that's about as far back as one can go. This is old stuff, very traditional, going way back to the early days of monasticism. Well, I think it would make an incredible movie. You have this nun who is fighting the demons of the Nazi party and saving people from death and concentration camps and saving allied fighters and at the same time battling spiritual forces. I think that would make an incredible film. Yeah. Uh, or even a miniseries. If, uh, it, it, it would have to be done by the person with the right kind of respect for this story, you know, not, not to turn it into something over sensationalized, but, to me, it's a fascinating story, and you know, I I'm going out on a limb here on our podcast uh, talking about her because I have only I'm, I'm a novice, I'm new at this. I didn't find her until I was almost done with my other project, the, the book they flew. So it's only been in the past year or so that I've started to come to terms with the weirdness of this. 
for the 20th century, right? Because that's a question I get all the time is, well, okay, so all these people you're dealing with, they lived a long time ago. How come we don't have those kinds of people anymore, these kinds of saints? And, well, here's one. And I'm still trying to get through the, to me, it's it's a puzzle. Why she has remained so French, why she has not become more international, because she has all the earmarks of someone like the much better known and canonized Padre Pio, the Italian monk who had the stigmata and bilocated and levitated and could foresee the future and could read people's minds and so on and so forth. Everyone knew about Padre Pio. By everyone, I mean Catholics. He was very well known. But Yvonne Aimee is not. They did live at the same time. Padre Pio died in 1968. She died in 1951. So he outlived her and he was older than she was. But he was well known in his own lifetime. And anything about Padre Pio ended up being published in various languages, not just in Italian. So they both shared so many traits in common, mystical traits, including the stigmata, that her relative invisibility outside of France uh, remains a puzzle. Well, I think when you look at both of them, even though they shared similar traits and had similar spiritual gifts, Padre Pio developed, at least from what I've seen and from what I've read, an incredibly large following where you would have hundreds or thousands of people coming to see him and to hear him talk. And yes. he sort of became a a sensation. He, he was yes. famous. And honestly, I had never heard of Mother Yvonne Aimee until you brought her up on a previous episode. So I, I think that kind of explains why you have such a disparity between the two of them. But I think there's also another factor, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Now, in the case of Padre Pio, he had an incredible following from faithful Catholics who came to see him and We've spoken before about his ability to tell whether someone who was confessing to them was telling them the whole truth and not the truth. His bilocation, his stigmata, uh, his struggles with demons, but those were all everybody knew about and it was sort of impossible to ignore. But when you think about the new 20th century Catholic wants to avoid pain, wants to avoid the ugly side of things. I don't think it's really that surprising that someone like Yvonne Aimee was kind of ignored because 20th century Christians didn't want to talk about that. Yeah, that's true. And I actually know someone who lives not too far from her convent. And he went there. He got very interested in, in her and he went to visit. And he said that, you know, usually, yes, She's known there locally, and at her convent, there are materials about her, but they're all about her work in the resistance against the Nazis, rather than on her mysticism. So uh, even locally, when you get down to the nub of it, although they have they have so many documents about her. A few days ago, I, I read uh, the exact number of documents they have. It's just a, t- a tremendous collection of materials related to her and testimonies about her and so on and so forth. But there's like no, the church, let's put it this way, the Catholic Church in Maletrois, or in France, has chosen not to turn her convent into a pilgrimage site, which I also find 
somewhat odd. I have also read several guesses being made as to why she has not been canonized yet. And there's talk, there's been some talk about the way in which from very high up in France and the French church, and also from Rome, from the highest levels, a lid was placed on her after her death because she is just too much. That's what I keep reading or running into, this claim that she was just too much. But Padre Pio also, not everyone in the Catholic Church, while Padre Pio was alive, thought he was the genuine article. There are many who thought he was a fraud. It's one of these quirky twists that Catholic history takes when it comes to the recognition of saints, those who make it, those who don't, and the circumstances which make one a saint, circumstances that prevent, in some cases, like actively prevent someone from being declared a saint, who share very, very similar traits. It's one of these uh, issues that in the distant past, yeah, historians have studied this for medieval hagiographies and early modern hagiographies, but in our own day and age, some of the very same decisions are being made at the highest levels of the Catholic Church as to what path somebody's life ends up taking as far as canonization. So if you look online, though, most of it is in French. If you look online, you find plenty of testimonials from people who are devoted to Mother Yvonne Aimee and who actually uh, pray for her intercession, even though she's not canonized. Many testimonials I found are fairly recent, and some have been in English. So maybe she's breaking out of that French bubble, perhaps. Well, I would agree that considering today's sensibilities, she's definitely too much. But then again, so was Teresa of Avila, even too much in her day and age for the Vatican and and for the Catholic hierarchy. So maybe what we need is a couple of hundred years to go by and maybe attitudes will change. Yes, because uh, attitudes always keep changing. And that's that's true. It's It's inevitable that attitudes change. So, yeah, uh, with the passage of time, I mean, uh, Maria de Agreda is still on the path very slowly, and it's been over 400 years in, in her case. So, yeah, the church tends to, Catholic church, moves very slowly on canonizations. In some cases, Padre Pio, however, you know, he, he died in 1968, and he was canonized in early 21st century. Pope John Paul II and Pope John XXIII were both canonized very quickly, especially John Paul II. But of course, when he died, there were crowds at St. Peter's there in that vast plaza designed by Bernini crying, Santo Subito, Santo Subito, Santo Subito, you know, instant saint, (laughs) instant saint, canonized, basically saying, Canonize him now. Canonize him. He's, you know, some of these extraordinary individuals are recognized by people, and popes are always very visible, have high visibility. So, well, I think visibility may play a larger role than than the Vatican would care to admit. Oh yeah, most definitely. And when you have, you know, pilgrims, really, there's no other word for it. Pilgrims 
traveling to see Padre Pio while he was still alive and to even go to confession with him. Yeah, that's that's very different from Mother Yvonne Aimé rescuing people or appearing to people suddenly and helping them. Well, her canonization may take a century or two or three or four to come along, but I certainly hope a book and a movie about her life comes a lot sooner, at least in yeah. time for me to be able to see it. Well, yeah, maybe you can help me when I make pitches about this. <laughs> uh, you can be my, my consult, my pitch consultant, how, how to pitch the story. I'll definitely be a cheerleader for it. Yeah. Uh, I encourage those that are listening to just look her up online. There are a lot of photographs. There are a lot of videos. Uh, you know, there's a video of all those medals being pinned on her. And actually, now that I think about it, she had a vision of that medal pinning event long, long, long before it happened, even before the Second World War had started. And that vision had puzzled her. So look her up, listeners, and see for yourself what's out there. It's also very unusual to have photos and film of anyone who is a mystic. And you can also see, because there are these websites in English that collect some of her sayings, and you can get a good taste of, you know, the kind of devotional life that she encouraged people to have. And here are a few. For instance, this is uh, Revelations from Jesus. And I quote, I may not give you anything very much to do, Whatever it is, I want you to do it really well and to do it purely for love of me. And then a lesson on humility. Realize that left to yourself, you are nothing because this will make you more wholly dependent upon your Lord whom you love above all else. Try to be like the dust. Dust is not concerned about the good opinion of those who trample on it. But again, both of those sayings, love is central, love is key. And she had a message about backbiting, you know, saying nasty things about other people. And this is Jesus speaking to her. And I quote, A vicious tongue is more cruel than the lance which pierced my heart. When it wounds another, it wounds a part of my body. Indeed, it wounds my living body, whereas the lance only pierced my dead body. It causes me more pain than the thorns caused my head or the nails my feet and hands. I love whoever it is whom that vicious tongue has attacked. I give my own life for them. Well, that takes all the fun out of talking about other people. <laughs> Gossiping and slandering. Uh, can, can you imagine present-day politicians <laughs> heeding that advice about backbiting? But here's another one. It's Jesus speaking again. As soon as a soul starts to love me, I at once increase my own love and grace in them. The least action done for love of me entails a fresh flood of supernatural grace. And another, my mercy is infinite. All souls can reach my divine heart and rise to whatever heights 
they wish within that heart. I make no distinction between the innocent and the guilty. The more they love me, the dearer they are to me. No soul will ever find limitations to its trust in my mercy, for I want that trust to go on growing forever. Those are all amazing. And just so you listeners know, we're going to try to put some links in the show notes showing the video that Carlos mentioned and maybe a website with some of these sayings so you guys give you quick access to see it. And an incredible story, an incredible woman, an incredible mystic. So it's going to be hard for you to top it on the next episode. Who do you have for us, Carlos? Yeah, well, you know, I thought uh, that we could um, go back in time again. I know this is, uh, we keep zigzagging through time. But since I brought her up today, and it also has to do with devotion to Jesus, is Margaret Mary Alacoc, who um, was really very, very significant for the development of the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Well, I know I'm looking forward to that one. And once again, I thank you for another great episode. And until the next time, thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>